When my dad was about uh, 10 years old, his mother died, and he and his little brother uh, lost their mom. You can imagine a, a, a pretty formative issue in his life. And his, his dad uh, was gone a lot, gone from home a lot, so my dad was raised in a household uh, primarily by his maternal grandmother and one of her daughters. Uh, stick with me if you can for just a minute. So Frances Porter was my grandmother by birth, and then her sister Grace became my step-grandmother later. My grandfather married two sisters, not at the same time. Okay, that's the key. Yeah, not at the same time. Uh, but Dad grew up in a house with two grown women. And my dad had lots of quips and quotes about him. And, and one of his that he repeated solemnly with great feeling was, the house has not been built that's big enough for two women. His grandmother and her grown daughter. Now that may be a fair or an unfair remark depending on who those women are and how big the house is. I don't know. But that was true in spades, certainly for the family of Abraham back in Genesis 16. Turn there if you like. We'll be there for just a minute. You can see uh, uh, Hagar and, and Sarah there on the overhead. Uh, in Genesis 16, you've got part of this story of Abram and Sarai. And they were old when God called them from Ur into the land of promise. They were without kids already. God had given them a promise of children but they had not seen that realized. And Sarai, as the years go by, she figures maybe we need to take some things into our own hands here. And so she tells her husband, uh, maybe it is through Hagar, my Egyptian servant slave, that God will give us kids. And so they made her a kind of second wife. Really, this is sort of an early form of surrogacy. And so young Hagar, Abraham, and she will conceive and get a baby, and we'll call that our child, our son. Well, lo and behold, Hagar does get pregnant. But right away, she looks at old, sterile, infertile Sarai, and she has contempt for her. Well, Sarai's not liking this one bit. This is her servant, by the way. And so... She has really harsh treatment in response to Hagar. So much so that Hagar runs away. Now, remember, the tent, Abraham's place, is the only place she has any provision, and yet she's desperate and she flees into the wilderness. And while she's there, God meets her. And God tells her, uh, Hagar, you need to go back. Go back to your mistress, Sarah, and submit to her. That wasn't the easiest thing to hear. God also told her this. You are pregnant. You're going to have a son. And you're to call his name Ishmael. Ishmael. Now, Ishmael means God hears. There was Hagar in the wilderness crying out and God heard her cries. Ishmael means God hears. This is Genesis 16.13 out of the ESV. She's met with God, the angel of the Lord in the wilderness. He's told her, go back. He's made future provision for her and her son. And the text says there, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. She gave God, if, as it were, a personal name. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen Him who looks after Me. That's the ESV. But we could translate it also, 
I have seen Him who sees me. The God who sees has seen me and I have seen Him. Hagar calls Him El Roy. And El means God. And Roy is from Ra'ah, which means to see. This is the God who sees. Now when she says that, she's not merely saying God physically, as it were, with sight. God looks down. He can see where I'm at here in the wilderness. She's implying God's benevolence here. That God looked down. Here is this isolated figure in the wilderness. God looks down and He saw where I was at. He saw me in all my destitute state. And, and I'm baffled about what to do. And I don't know how to go forward. And I'm pregnant. And what am I going to do? And what is this going to look like? And she says, God heard me where I was at. God saw me where I was at. And God hearing and God seeing was the front end of God providing for her. So she says, God is the God who sees me. I've seen the God who sees me. And the God who sees me is the one who provides for me. God's provision for Hagar at the time was not what she would have liked. Go back to the situation you just fled from and submit to Sarai. Not exactly what she wanted to hear, but that was God's provision for her. I hope you guys have had experiences like this where like Hagar in the wilderness, you've got something going on in your life and you assume nobody else knows what it is. That you've got some trial or some affliction. You're baffled by one thing or another. You don't know what to do. And as far as you know, you're the only one who's aware of your problem and your need. And then... Someone steps in, a family member, a brother or sister in Christ, a friend, and whatever that need is, they speak to it or they address it. And you know you're absolutely thrilled for at least two reasons. One is that whatever the need of the moment was that sort of drove you to despair or this sense of isolation, I'm in the wilderness alone by myself, the need is met and you're thrilled. That whatever that problem or challenge was, that's been met. But guys, the other side is this. You realize, I thought I was alone, and I wasn't. That God was aware and someone else was aware of me in my desperation, in my wilderness. Someone else heard me. Someone else saw me. And someone else provided for me. I'm not alone. God sees. God's aware. Uh, When Kathy and I were raising our family, and we had a great time doing it, By the way, my kids will be here next Sunday, so they'll be thrilled to see a bunch of you. And if you don't know them, you haven't met them, I hope you'll say hi to them. They are some of the best people I know, not because they're my kids. They're great, great gals and great husbands. Uh, When Kathy and I were raising our family, we had lots of things in the way of blessing. We felt blessed, but guys, we had no money. We had no, no money. We never missed a meal because of finances. We never were late on paying a bill. But if anything came up out of the ordinary, we, uh, we didn't have any provision for it. And as young Christians in a church many years ago here in Topeka, we found out that other brothers and sisters in Christ took God's command to love each other in Christ's name. The Rutgers were there, come to think of it. Uh, took those commands seriously. And what we found was we weren't necessarily telling other people about what our financial needs in the moment were, but guys, we received one financial gift after another. 
in those years, those five years in that church, six years in that church, we were praying, certainly we were talking to our friends about it, but we would get one gift after another to meet those needs that came up that we simply didn't have resources for. One of those that came to us was an anonymous gift, but it had a note attached to it that referenced Isaiah 49.15. It was just that verse on the note that says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? So here, the most tender picture, right, of human love, a nursing child at its mother's breast. I mean, talk about a bond, right? God says, even these may forget. It may be possible for a mother to forget her son, but I will not forget you. That was the verse with the note. It's like to Mike and Kathy, you may think no one else knows what's going on, but God knows, God sees, God cares, and God's with it in you. God's providing there with you. And guys, that's the message for us this morning. We are not alone. And we serve a God who hears our prayers, sees our needs, and meets us in our wilderness needs, whatever those may be. We're in week four of this series titled, Behold Your God. The theme of this is, is we want to see God more fully as He is, and seeing Him more fully as He is, we want to worship Him. We want our hearts to be drawn more fully out after Him. We want our wills set more fully on knowing and pleasing Him. And all of this is underwritten by the theme in Psalm 115, verse 8. In the negative there, the psalmist says, when Gentiles crafted and made idols that they worshipped, the end product of that worship of idols was they became like the idol. They became like the object of their worship in a negative sense. But guys, the positive is also true. If we know and worship the living and true God, the fruit of that is we end up becoming more fully like God. The object of our worship determines where we're heading. G.K. Beale in his book, we become what we worship, said this, what people revere they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. So as we look at the fruits of our life, we have a pretty good indicator of who or what we're beholding. Are we beholding God and being transformed into His image? Or are we beholding and setting our affections on something or someone less than that such that we are simply moving in the direction of ruin? God repeatedly shows himself to be the God who sees sees us in whatever our predicaments are and seeing the God who provides for us. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to roll through just a, a number of uh, passages, brief, briefly, brief passages, and look at this theme about God seeing and God providing. The first of these just has to do with Israel and Egypt. So, you know, Abram and Sarah, they had a son, Ishmael, and they also had Isaac the son of promise. And Isaac's descendants through Jacob, they went down to the land of Egypt. You remember there's a famine in the land of promise. Joseph, because his brother sold him into slavery, is down in Egypt, but he's become the second most powerful man next to Pharaoh. And he's down there and he tells Jacob and company, come down, the famine's not over, it's going to be quite a while, come down, I'll take care of you in Egypt. And so they do. But while they're there, they start reproducing and the years roll by and the generations roll by and year after year rolls by and Israel as an identifiable group in Egypt, they remain to themselves. 
And they expand greatly. So greatly that as the years and the centuries roll by, the Egyptians become concerned that there's too many of these Jews in our midst. They could cause us trouble. And so through Pharaoh, they decide to treat like Sarah did Hagar. They're going to treat the Jews harshly. And they're not going to allow their little baby boys to grow and thrive. And it's in that setting that Exodus 2, this is at verse 23, speaks. God describes their situation this way. The people of Israel, remember they're slaves and it's hard. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And just like Hagar in the wilderness, God heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant, His promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, the God of seeing, saw His covenant people in Egypt, and God knew. God heard, God saw, God remembered, God knew. Now all of this is leading up to God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. God sees, God knows, God's going to do something. He's going to provide for their need. So, of course, they're slaves there. Chapter 3, God introduces us to Moses. God is going to provide a deliverer for them by way of Moses. Moses is going to come and do those works of power against the Egyptian gods to show that Yahweh is more powerful than anything Egypt has to offer by way of worship. Israel obeyed God in the Passover meal so that the firstborn of the Jewish families were saved when the angel of death went through Egypt and slew all the firstborn of the Egyptians. God provided for their deliverance. Psalm 136.12 says it this way, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. So there they are. They're in their wilderness like Hagar. They don't know what to do. They're treated harshly. They pray. God hears. God sees. And God provides. When you look into their descendants, of course, you know, Israel is going to come out in that exodus. They're going to go into the land of promise and they go through lots of time, the period of the judges and ups and downs. But eventually they get a king. And, you know, the Jews wanted a king because they wanted to be like the nations around them. And so the first king God gave them, this was not God's original design for Israel. The first king God gave them was King Saul. And he gave the nation the kind of king they thought they wanted. So Saul is this big, strapping, handsome man, and he gets an army and he defends the nation, and all that looks good. But the problem is Saul is an unconverted person, and he's wicked, and he never gets it right. He's a pathetic figure in the annals of Scripture. Whatever he should be doing, he doesn't do. And God looks down and he's talking to the prophet Samuel, And Samuel was the one that anointed Saul as the king. Back when Saul was this humble guy who said, who am I and who is my father and what is my family that I should become king of Israel? Samuel's the one that anointed him. And God tells Samuel, I'm sorry I made him king. I'm done with Saul as king. I've looked at Saul. I've seen what his life's like. I know the needs of my people. I'm done with him. And Samuel laments all night with God. He he has affection for Saul. But the next day, this is in chapter 16, following Saul's uh, last disobedience to God in chapter 15, uh, God says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? 
I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I have provided the kind of king the nation needs and the kind of king that will honor me. And of course, that will become King David. Now here, it's not Israel crying out for a different king, but it's God looking down at the king they desired, the effect he has on the nation, the lack of honor he gives God. It's God seeing things as they are that says, I'm going to provide for myself my kind of king. God saw and God provided. Now when you go down the line of David, you get down to 2 Kings 20. We're moving right on through here. But one of David's descendants was good king Hezekiah. This is in 2 Kings chapter 20. And Hezekiah is just one of the stalwarts in Scripture. You know, when you read through Kings, you related to every king, it says they were good or they were bad. They were like David or they weren't. They honored God or they didn't honor God. And you get to Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was just sterling. And he was like his forebear, King David. And he got rid of the idols, and he restored temple worship. And Israel, for the first time in a long time, celebrated Passover again. Hezekiah was just a stalwart man of God. He had God's heart. God had his heart. And yet a day came when Hezekiah got sick. And he wasn't a little sick. He was a lot sick. And God sent Isaiah the prophet to him to say, Hezekiah, put your house in order because you're going to die from this sickness. Now, not only was Hezekiah sick, but he was sick at a time when Israel really needed him because Sennacherib and Assyria, that empire that would come and surround Jerusalem and take every other city in Jerusalem, they were breathing down Judah's neck at this same time. You can imagine Hezekiah. I'm, he's still young. I, I, I don't want to die yet. The nation needs solid leadership. And the Lord tells me my days are numbered and I'm done. Well, the scene that follows is great because it's, the text says Hezekiah is lying in bed sick. And it says he turned his face to the wall and he wept and he cried out to God in prayer. Lord, I, I don't want to die. I'm, I'm not ready for this and I want to be here for your kingdom. And as Isaiah was walking out the palace, he doesn't get out the palace doors before God taps him on the shoulder and says, go back and say something different now to King Hezekiah. And this is what he says. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, in three days, You'll go up to the house of the Lord. You'll be healed. You'll be able to go up and worship in three days. And I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. I love the language. He was desperate. He's, he's weeping. His face is to the wall. He feels without hope. But he cries out to God. And God says, just like Hagar, I've heard your prayers. I've seen your tears. This is the most powerful guy in the nation and he can't do anything to save himself. And God says, I've heard, I've seen, I'm here for you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to extend your life and I will end up delivering the nation as well. 
Now, when you and I see our own needs, sometimes, sometimes we're desperate, aren't we? Sometimes we know there's no way out. What do I do? I need help. And I don't think anybody can, can help me. I don't think there's an answer to my problem. Other times, though, we don't see our sins and our challenges the way God does. The serious nature of our sins or our predicament. You know, back in Genesis 3, do you like this illustration? I searched long and hard to get these for you, okay? So this one, I, I looked a long time for an image suitable, <clears throat> suitable for, for, for all ages. Uh, Genesis 3, you know, in the temptation account, Satan promises Adam and Eve something they didn't have. He says, you'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. They were innocent, and they didn't know evil. But when they disobeyed God and they ate the fruit, they knew good from evil because they'd chosen evil. They were now evil. And you know, guys, their first pang was we are suddenly not right. We're wrong in a way that doesn't feel good. And we don't know what this is all about, but we, whatever else we do, we need to hide now. You know, so their first inclination after their sin, it's shame. We're ashamed. We're evil. We are not any longer what God made us to be. And guys, when we're ashamed, you know what we want to do? We want to hide. We want to hide. That's exactly what they did, isn't it? Now, their problem is primarily moral, isn't it? It's moral and spiritual. And in Genesis 2, related to being naked, says they were naked and unashamed. Because they're only and everything God intended them to be. Naked and unashamed. No problem. But once they've sinned, they know we are not what we should be. And with that shame and that initial desire to hide, they can't hide their moral and spiritual evil, so they try to hide their physical nakedness. And so what do they do? They put fig leaves together. Now two things. Their problem isn't primarily physical. It's moral and it's spiritual. And fig leaves say absolutely nothing about the real need. But secondarily, none of us are sporting fig leaves this morning. There's probably a reason for that. Because fig leaves are pretty inadequate as covering, aren't they? They, they make lousy clothes. So what does God do? So God comes down and He looks and He knows their nakedness is moral and spiritual. And you're going to have to do something about that. But he also knows those fig leaves just don't cut it. That is not this year's fashion trend. It's not going to last very long. We need to do something better. So what does God do there? You know, it says that it says what he clothes them with. It doesn't say what it required. So it says God trades their fig leaves for skins, for hides, for leather clothing, leather clothing. Guys, the first biological death recorded in the Bible, it's not stated emphatically, but God slew animals and took their skins to give adequate physical covering to Adam and Eve. Not moral, not spiritual, but adequate physical covering to cover their nakedness. And of course, in doing so, God was foreshadowing for you and I today the fact that He would keep His promise that He'd make to Eve, that one of her children 
would one day crush the head of the serpent, the one who had tempted them, led them into sin and death. And those animals that were slain and those skins that covered their physical nakedness were God's way of intimating, I see your real need. I know what your real need is, whether you do or not. And the slain animals and those leather skins that have covered your physical nakedness speak to the real solution for your problem, which is atonement and forgiveness. It's moral and spiritual reclamation, reformation. And God was intimating even then that you and I needed a provision bigger and better than fig leaves. Do you guys find that you say to yourself things like this? Um, I struggle with pornography, but it's not that big a deal. It doesn't control my life. Or I abuse alcohol or food, or I lie, or I gossip, or I slander, or I say things I don't know that are true. But it's not that big a deal. They're little sins. We're, We're cast right there in Adam and Eve's role, aren't we? We've got some shame, but we want to deny it. We need some cover, we know that. And part of it is just saying, it's not that big a deal. And God looks at our life and He says, well, I see your need as it really is. I'm not fooled by your denials. I see your sin and your need as it really is. Now, back in the life of Sarah and Abraham, God gave them the son of promise they had waited for all those years in Isaac. And you, you can imagine Sarah's elation. Isaac means laughter. And she says, everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. They will rejoice with me. And you can imagine the center of attention that Isaac must have been in that household. And how Abraham's heart was knit to his son's heart. And Isaac grows up. And probably when this story happens, he's probably a strapping young man. And one day God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham... And Abraham says, here I am. And he says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, related to the promise, the son that you love, and you take him to the place that I will show you at Moriah, and you offer him there as a sacrifice to me. And you know, nothing is said of equivocation or argument on Abraham's part. It just says he gets the servants, he gets Isaac, he takes the firewood. They take a three days journey and they stop and the servants remain behind. And we want to see that in our mind's eye that there's Abraham and there's Isaac and dad takes the load of wood to burn up the sacrifice and he lays it on his son's back. And Abraham is carrying the knife to slay the sacrifice and he's got fire, which is probably coals in some a clay pot or a clay jar. And they're walking up the hill. And as they're walking up the hill, something occurs to Isaac. And he says to dad, Genesis 22, 7 and 8, Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, just like God had called to Abraham, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they, both of them went on together. God will provide the lamb. And as you know, 
Abraham binds Isaac, lays him on the altar on the wood, and as he raises his knife to slay, to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Abraham, stop. I know that you put me above all things. And as God talks to him through the angel of the Lord, he sees a ram caught in a thicket nearby. And so, of course, Abraham understands Isaac's life has been spared, but there's still a sacrifice to be made. And it's going to be the ram instead. And so in Genesis 22:14, Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And in the Hebrew it would be Yahweh Ra'ah. Now, <clears throat> the term, the word provide here in Genesis 22, God will provide for Himself a lamb, is literally to see. The word is to see. So, to Isaac's question, where is the lamb Abraham essentially says, God will see to that Himself. The God who sees will see to that Himself. And when you go back into the passages we've been in already, in Genesis 16, God sees Hagar and the unborn Ishmael, and God sees to their needs. It's the same word, ra'ah. And in Exodus 2, God saw Israel's need, and God saw to their needs in providing a deliverer Moses, the miracles, and the Passover. And in 1 Samuel 16, when Israel needed a new king to replace wicked King Saul, God said, I will see to that Myself. God seeing to it is God providing. I see the need and I'm providing for that. Now you know that God always meant for us to see in Abraham. Think of Adam and Eve and the animal skins, the promise to the to Eve, the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head. Jesus was always anticipated in the Old Testament. And God seeing our needs in our first parents and all the way down through the ages, God knew that we needed a provision adequate to take care of our real need, which is sin and our alienation from God. And so on a spot not far from Isaac's rescue, you remember Isaac's rescued, but the ram is not. The ram is the substitute for Isaac. Isaac goes free because God sacrifices the lamb, the ram caught in the thicket. God always knew the depth of our need. He was always planning for the ultimate, appropriate, efficient provision for that need, which was Jesus' substitutionary death in our place. Jesus becomes the ram in the thicket. On one hand, Isaac is the picture of Jesus. But on the other, in the Genesis 22 account, the ram becomes the substitute. The ram dies so that Isaac can go free. Guys, if we see, let me say it this way, if we fail to see the depth of our sin and what it does to us, we don't have the sense of need and urgency. We don't know that we need some provision that's bigger than we can afford. We think fig leaves may suit for the moment. But if you felt the weight of your sin or the alienation or I'm at a place in life where I don't know what to do and I don't know how to save myself, we're in the perfect place to understand. God comes in and says, I see your need fully and I made provision for your sin fully in the death of my son, the substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus died for our sins. If we don't know that, 
Today, any day, any moment is a good time to simply receive the gift of eternal life God offers us in His Son. We don't work for it. God provided that ram right there for Isaac's deliverance. And God has provided for us in Jesus' death and resurrection the ultimate covering that we always need, God always saw and was aware of. If you've done that, let me ask you this. If you know Christ has died for my sins, God loved me, set His love on me, Christ died for my sins, I'm saved, my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven. If we know that, how do we respond to the lesser challenges of life when they come up? Do you guys find that we tend to be Hagar in the wilderness? No one knows, no one cares, I'm stuck. This is where I'm at. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. Paul, Paul provides a logic based on God's provision for our ultimate need in Romans 8.32. He says it this way. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the logic is sound. If God has provided for your ultimate need, need through the most costly provision imaginable his son the son that he loves his only son then we can be certain that god will provide for any lesser need we may have also if god has loved me enough to sacrifice jesus for my sins god will withhold no good thing from me So that when you and I are facing those times in life where we're tempted to be Hagar in the wilderness, we're in despair. We don't know where to turn. We don't know what to do. We should at least like her call out to God. Hezekiah, call out to God. God, you're the God who sees Abraham. God, would you see my situation? Would you come in and would you see to my need in this moment? Would you provide? You've provided Jesus. Will you come in and provide this too? So whatever the situation is in our life at a given time, if it's jobs or income, if it's a sin challenge or an issue, if it's relational challenge, whatever it is, I can trust that God sees my need fully and God is going to provide for my need fully, whatever that is. You can't get away from it. The logic is sound. Now, if we say on a Sunday morning in church, sitting here comfortably, God will meet all my needs. And you look at your own life and you might say, I don't see God providing for my needs. Then we must be getting something wrong, right? So on the authority of the scripture, God's provided our greatest need. He's committed to all our lesser needs. So if you and I look at our life and we say we have a need that God's not meeting I say we've got to come to a little different conclusion, and it's this. It's that as God who sees everything as it is, as He looks at our life, He either sees our needs differently than we do, at least in their priority, or He sees the provision for those needs differently than we do. When uh, Kathy and I, in those early years of our marriage, just thinking of finances, um, I had this image in my mind And it's that I'm out in the ocean and I'm out up to here. And those were our finances. I feel like I'm in the ocean and and I'm so tired of being right here. Hagar in the wilderness or Mike in the ocean up to his neck. It's like, Lord, and I would say I would pray repeatedly, Lord, would you save me or would you drown me? Because I don't care which 
Just do one or the other. Just whatever you do, just don't leave me right here. So that's my need. And what did God do? He left me right there for years and years. Because my needs were not primarily financial, were they? Guys, we never missed a meal. We never missed a bill on time. The needs were not primarily financial. They were, Mike, will you trust me? Mike, will you choose to be content where you're at? Mike, will you see all the ways I've blessed you? And will you say, Lord, thanks for that and and I'm good? And it took a long, long time for that need to come home to Mike. Decades. But that was the real thing. God left me where I was at. So one of the things we need to conclude, God is the one who provides for us. And if you're a believer, if he's given Jesus, he'll take care of every other sub or minor need. Now, sometimes God, guys, just like those believers in our early days became God's means of provision for us, God saw and God provided, but he did so through other believers. Part of the transformation that we accrue in Christ as we see him as he is, is that we often become more like him. And one of those facets is we end up becoming people in God's hands who are part of the means of providing for other people's needs. And that is really cool too. You know, it's really cool to see God provide for your needs through someone else. And it's also really cool to be part of God providing for someone else's needs too. So I'm sitting here this morning thinking, we've had a group of folks who've been to Haiti recently. And so God sees the believers in Haiti, doesn't He? And He loves them as much as He loves us. And the body of Christ here in Topeka and other parts of the country ends up becoming part of the way God provides for the needs of the church and the saints in Haiti. Or on these Christmas boxes. Now just imagine this for a second. You're a little kid. These boxes go to kids all over the world, right? And most of them are in places in which there's physical poverty, spiritual and moral poverty, and yet there are churches there who through these boxes give these boxes and these gifts to these kids, and these kids learn something at least in the moment that God sees and God knows and God cares. And they hear the Gospel, many of them, for the first time because believers have cared to send boxes to them. And it's the means by which they hear of the greatest provision for their ultimate needs in the Gospel. You know, this church prayed for many years, many years, Lord, would You give us a building of our own? Now, it's not that buildings make churches. Churches are the people. But we just wanted a place that we could live out the faith Monday through Saturday, not just Sunday, in a rented facility. Guys, we prayed for years. And at the right time, God moved on the saints of Faith Baptist, and they said, would you like a building and some property? And it's like, wow. I remember the Sunday we announced this, we said, we told the church, we always said if we ever got a building, God would have to give it to us. And He did. And He heard us, and He saw, yeah. And He provided. So... We've got a history with this. We are there with these same groups. Let me close with this. This is from Philippians 4.19. And before I read this, please remember that when Paul writes this, he's sitting in a Roman prison. He's sitting in a Roman prison when he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's the God 
we serve. Father, thanks for revealing Yourself in Your Word. Lord, thanks for showing us through Hagar and Abram and Sarai, David and Hezekiah, and on and on and on. Lord, that You see us in our estate as we are. You see our needs fully. You've met our needs fully in Christ. You're committed to every lesser need. Lord, would You help us to pour out to You hearts of worship, would you help us to cultivate in ourselves and for and with each other confidence in the God who sees and provides. In Jesus' name, amen.